0: Please be seated. See, you were waiting there for the because the weren't you, what was going to happen? Just a little plug before we pray. Um, this is the book that's being pushed for this Advent season. I am afraid I bought it on Kindle, although I like the Touch and Feel of book, so please check your book still there at the end, Adrian, won't you? But fantastic book, and it was opened up to us a little bit last week when Johnny and Lissette actually talked about one of the patriarchs and his wife and how they actually lived in this turbulence the white noise between now and when jesus comes back for them it was jesus first coming but for us of course we're between the first and the second coming so let's pray Uh, father as we wait this morning help us to wait with hope help us to see things through your lens and through your perspective Despite all the stuff that's happening at the minute, just give us a a few minutes to set those things aside. As Adrian said this morning, put down the rucksack with all the rocks, so we can actually just be still. And as a psalmist, remind us, know that you are God. Amen. So, uh, we're thinking about Advent, and we've introduced this series of waiting. But this is the first Sunday in Advent. And in case you didn't know, um, Advent just comes from two Latin words, and it means the coming to. That's all it means. And it was introduced into the Christian calendar about the 4th century AD. And it was introduced in liturgy as a time of preparation. So the Advent Sundays, the times coming up to Christmas, would have been quite low. The liturgies would have been sung. The prayers would have been quite heavy. And there was very little sign of rejoicing in any of that stuff because it was this idea, the prelude to the coming of the Christ child. So if you like, the metaphor was darkness. So this time of waiting... A time of expectancy. I think rarely did we see hope breaking through Um, because the church was remembering the cost. Because for every Christmas there's an Easter. And the church was, in a sense, saying, is it okay to think about Christmas without Easter? Because the shadow of the cross hung over the baby from his birth. And for us today, these things, these symbols, maybe we're not sure what they mean. In the Middle Ages, the Christians started using a lot of metaphor. We'd stained glass windows, Lots of people couldn't read. And so therefore, they heard the music, and they were lifted with the music and the joy. They heard the call and responses, and then they saw the stories in the windows of the church, even though they couldn't read. And then when they came in and they saw the greenery, things that were everyday things, the wreath spoke to them about what was going on just having passed the harvest, on all the bounty, all the things that God provided for. So in the middle of it, we see God became man on the earth. And these are reminders of the earthliness of that. The candles, of course, very simply, were the Christ child coming into the world. And when we see it among the evergreens, it's the idea that it's constantly being reviewed and renewed. Now, often you'll find two of the candles are purple in our case, we've got two or three of them that are purple or blue, and they talk of majesty. If you can think of the purple robes of kings, so that reminds us in the middle of the advent calendar, in the middle of the advent ring, the wreath, Jesus is there as Lord. The pink is actually one that we'll come to in a second, but people often say, um, what's the third blue for? Because we can, we can sort of get our heads around the prophecy bit and we get our heads around the wedding bit, but it reminds us of Mary who looked up into heaven And it's reminding us of the color of the sky, the blueness. Now for us, it's lost today, but that was Mary at the cross, when Jesus had gone and she looked up into heaven. And it's reminding us of all the stuff. So the other candle you see is a rose or a pink, and that's the light of the first dawn, whenever the disciples came, if you remember, and the women beat them to to the tomb, and the dawn was taking place. And that reminds us of the dawn, and then the white reminds us, in the middle of all this darkness, all this black, the Christ child came, and the darkness was turned into light. So those are the symbols, and they also speak for different virtues. So the candle we've lit today is normally called called the prophetic or the prophecy candle, but we refer to it as the candle of hope, and it's hope I want to talk about today. As we roll on the further weeks, we deal with love, which talks about Bethlehem and the birth of Jesus. There's joy when the shepherds, if you remember in the shepherd's field, saw the angels and heard the song and were joyous, and let's go into Bethlehem to see all these stuff that's happened. And then peace, because the Christ child was the Prince of Peace. And as we light those candles, those are the things that, if you like, surround us at this Christmas time. And then, of course, on Christmas, there is the white candle reminding us of Jesus. But this first candle is both hope and prophecy. And the two things are connected, as I hope to try to explain a little bit today. Because I want to think specifically about what Isaiah did. So in Advent, it reminds us that we're between the time when Jesus came and lived among us and died and rose again, and the time when he's yet to come. And that's an awkward place, because someone referred to us as being in between people. In between the already, the stuff that's happened, and the not yet, the stuff that's about to happen. And it's a bit like between Black Friday and Cyber Monday, which is where we are on Sunday, in case it hadn't escaped your notice. This tension of, what am I gonna do? And you know, Black Friday has become a real anxiety period for a lot of people. And then they say, oh, I don't have enough for Cyber Monday. And if you've forgotten about it, don't worry. It doesn't really matter. But this notion that so many people had stocked up on Jesus' death and resurrection, and then suddenly, they're not yet. So what do we do about this period in between? So how do we actually cope with waiting? How do we wait? Well, I don't know about you if you're expecting something. You know, if it's a dentist appointment, I hope he misses it. You know, if it's something that you want for Christmas, I hope it turns up. So the idea is, do you wait anxiously? Oh, I'm not ready. You know, you're on your way out. We have some children, grandchildren, and as soon as we go out, they need the toilet, right? And they just wait until that moment. Hands up, if you're among friends, you're Christians, you have to tell the truth. You know, you wait, thank you. You wait to the last minute. That's almost too much information, isn't it? But you wait to the last minute to do stuff. So even I see partners are being nudged here. That's you, that's you. We're all Christians, right? So do you wait impatiently? How many pacers are there? People who pace when they're waiting for things. That sort of impatience. Where is he? He said he'd be here. You know, and it's one minute past. He said he'd be here at 11 o'clock. And you're panicking. Maybe they've forgotten or you're at the wrong cafe. I tend to think I'm at the wrong place. Are you waiting expectantly any minute now? Are we there yet? You know, you leave the house and you're driving somewhere. Are we there yet? This expectation of the wait. Do you spend your life reading signs? and trying to find out what this particular thing, what was this, and you're looking in the Bible to try to find out why it's red sky at night and so on. And you're spending so much time looking in the minutiae and the forensics that you're actually missing the big picture. Jesus said that to the Pharisees. You you can tell the weather. You know, you look around and you know what tomorrow's gonna be, but you don't know when the Son of Man's coming back because it's not really an issue for you. Do you spend it busily? You know, holidays are there, and you spend the week before laying your clothes out and then laying them out again and doing all this stuff. So you spend your time busily waiting for that moment. But how many people, how many of us spend our time in hope? Really, hopefully, eagerly, anticipating the return of Christ. I was thinking about the word hope and the amount of time I hear it used, you know, through the media, on the television, in conversations. And mostly people will say, I hope that it happens. Whatever it happens to be, like I hope people like what I say today. But if you don't, well, that's my loss. But, uh, you know, we use the hope very casually. And sometimes it's a bit like a belief in something. I've got hope that I can get to work in time. And then you turn the corner and you can see all the cars. But you should be on the bus, of course, in the bus lane. But anyway, so there you are, um, that conflict of interest there. But the fact is you turn and everything is planned and then suddenly slump. I did not expect that to happen. And that was what it was like 2,000 years ago when they didn't expect Jesus to be the Messiah. It was not who they were waiting for. Anymore when they were having a prayer meeting to release the guys in prison. And remember, they've been released. Leave it, we're praying for you. You can't be released yet because we're still praying. Do you know that idea that things have to happen in a certain sequence? But God tends to deliver things unexpectedly when we least expect it happening. We still have one hope. My mum might let me the car keys. You know, this sort of idea. But it's always this, a bit like a butterfly. You're never quite sure if you're going to catch it or not. We also say things like, I hope I'm going to get rich. I hope for a cure to be found of a particular illness. I hope that I'm going to get my essays done in time over Christmas period, Adrian. You know, all these things. I hope that somebody else feels the same way about me as I do about them. And the word hope is it can be applied in so many different contexts. We sometimes say we aspire, we desire, we expect, we want, we trust. In other words, there are lots of different words, do the hope stuff. But there's a specific Christian understanding of hope, which is not putting your hope in money, which is not putting your hope in the bullet, in war, putting your hope in the monarchy, do I even say, or indeed in politics, because that, in my view, is misplaced hope. It is hope for the secular here and now, but it's certainly not dealing with how we as Christians should be preparing. It doesn't mean we don't get involved in these things, but that type of hope is a bit like optimism. You know, I hope so-and-so wins the election. I hope so-and-so wins the FA Cup or the World Cup, if you're watching it, because optimism is something you work through logically. You know, Certain things happen, and it presents you with some optimistic view Hope breaks in in the middle of stuff that looks travesty, in the middle of stuff that looks dark, unredeemable. Hope breaks in like Jesus did 2,000 years ago when you least expect it, and your hopelessness becomes hopefulness. Now, I don't want God to break in to make us hopeful. I think we should be anticipating his breaking in, and therefore this period between the now and the then should be a period of anticipation and hope. So what Abram and Sarah talked about last week, then about a thousand years pass and David comes along. He fulfills part of the hope that Abram and, and Sarah had been talking about. Then another couple of hundred years happen and Isaiah pops up in the 8th century in what we would now call the land, once called holy, the Holy Land. And it had just begun to be divided, if you remember. Israel and Judah, Israel had been taken off. He's in the bottom bit here. But there was the fear that Assyria was going to really mess stuff up. So this was not a hope-filled season that Isaiah was called into. In fact, it was a hopeless season. So he's called, and this is the story. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were called one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty the whole earth is filled of his glory. Do you remember? wars about to happen. So Isaiah sees this breakthrough of hope. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. That's incense. It's the idea that God was present in that. Woe to me, he said, I'm ruined because in the face of God, the only reaction can be how sinful you are. That's what Isaiah feels here. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Almighty. He could not get over. Hope had broken into his life, and he didn't know how to deal with it. Then one of the seraphim, they're just angels, flew to me with a live coal in his hand. This is trust. And he'd taken the tongs from the altar. Would you like an angel coming up with a live coal to put it over to your mouth? What would you do? That's about, do you trust me? Do you really feel that I have what it takes to empower you, Isaiah? He touched my mouth. This has touched your lips, says the Lord, and your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord. Who will I send and who will go for us? Here am I, send him. No, that's not what Isaiah said. Isaiah said, here am I, send me. He said, God, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing, never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull, close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Now, you know, that's, that's a fairly big task. And then, not a bit of wonder, as I turns right and said, well, do you know what length like, of time is this going to be, Lord? For how Lord, long, Lord? So he enters in this period of waiting. Now, coming before him was a period of time in the Old Testament and a number of books that we know and love where we see that the Old Testament religion was a religion of hope. You know, you have it right through the kings, things happen, you know, they messed up, they called out, God provided a king, and then everything was okay for a few years, and then it all fell down again. Because their religion was centered on one god, not all these other gods that you had to appease, and that this god wanted the best for them, and his aim was to deliver the people, was to protect them, to take them through the wilderness wanderings, to make sure they were going to be pure, that they were confident. And that stood in stark contradiction to the rest of the ancient Near Eastern world because the gods would just zap them. And you had to make sure you did all the stuff and you paid all your Jews and had all the altar stuff going on or the God would judge you. The Hebrew, the Israel God was not like that because he said there's gonna be better times coming. So constantly God was pointing his people ahead Now, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, there are actually 15 words for hope, believe it or not. So when the translators are looking, as you know, all translation is interpretation. You can't simply say, hope means X, and every time you see it, that's how it's applied. So 15 different words, but the word that we're thinking about today has to do with eagerness and anticipation. So two words that are specific within Isaiah is one, kahal, it simply means to wait, And then there's another one that means a chord. Now, what on earth has that got to do with anything? Can you imagine a guitar chord being taut, tense, and you pluck it? So it's this idea that your waiting should be tense waiting. You should be anticipating. It's picking up the sounds. It's the vibrations. So it's not just hope, oh, I hope Jesus turns up. Your hope should be laced with eagerness. The DNA of that hope has to be with expectation that God's going to do So effectively, between now and then, we should be living and waiting with hope. So in the Old Testament, they hoped that Jesus would come, the Messiah, but that hope was an eager expectation. It wasn't just a hope tomorrow's not going to be wet. That hope actually meant they had faith it would happen. That's not how we mean hope here. So hope is actually theological proof. I hope it's going to happen sooner rather than later, perfectly legitimate, but make no doubt Jesus is coming back. So when Isaiah came into Judah, his message was for Judah, but also for Israel, so the whole of the two nations. But he lived possibly through three or four kings, so he had the ear of the king for 40 or 50 years. Assyria was about to do its stuff, and Isaiah's call that we've just read really threw three things before him. His call was, first of all, to remind himself who God was, and we could do with that, you know, because sometimes we become too friendly and too pally. It was to challenge the false religion of Israel and Judah. And then finally, it was to remind people of the promise. So how did he remind people who God was? Arise, shine, the light has come, the glory of the Lord has risen on you. And behold, his darkness shall cover the earth and deep darkness for the people, but the Lord will arise and his glory will be seen. Hope, expectation that things are going to transform remarkably. This is about reminding ourselves who God is. This is Isaiah. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or made the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Who has weighed the mountains and the scales and the hills on a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct him as Lord and counselor? So we start to, hold on a minute or two. You might rule a country. You might even rule a, a, a dynasty. My God made you. My God created the world, and as though he held it in his hand. And we could do with a good dose of that, the limitation of us, because so often God becomes the God of the gap. Things that we can't explain, God fills that gap. And as science and technology increase, the gap gets smaller, until eventually, who? You know, God becomes pushed out. The second thing, he was to challenge false religion. Woe to those who make unjust laws, who issue oppressive decrees, who deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. And then he goes on to say, where will you leave your riches? Interestingly enough, he didn't write a treatise on theology. He didn't say you will judge their religion by their doctrine. You will judge their religion by all the stuff that they teach in catechism. He actually says by their works you'll know them. And whatever religion is, whatever name it claims, if it is not delivering these things, it's false. So we've made a habit of saying here's all the religions and they're all false, but we run the same risk as saying falseness is defined on doctrine. So if somebody's doctrine doesn't accord with your doctrine, then they're out of the group. We have something like 115 Protestant denominations in this place I call home, 115. And most Protestant churches have been formed because they disagree with a wee bit of theology of the other one. And sometimes you wonder, when did that happen? 200 years ago? But it's still important today, you know. Now, I don't mean to be funny. I'm not poking fun. I'm simply saying we're dividing. And rather than saying, what is it that we should be doing with our faith, we're actually analyzing the theology. And personally, for me, that's not what Isaiah is called to do here because he then talks about how idols are formed. And he says, you know, people go out into the forest, they cut down a tree, and out of one part of the tree, they make an idol and they worship it. And then to make the altar to that idol, they take the other part of the same tree and they set up a fire. So part of the tree's a God and part of the tree is the fire. How does that work out? He was making fun and saying, how do you do this? You're basically saying, here's the door and it's so narrow, no one's going to get in. And we need to be really careful in our Christian community that we don't make doors so narrow round the back that don't have signs that people can't get in or we set a list of rules and regulations for people to become members. Because what Isaiah was saying is, my God's open. He's open even to Gentiles. That was a big thing. And the final thing he did was to remind people of the promise. Because people, this little, you know the way you get an earworm? There's a particular piece of music, and for the rest of the day, uh, I don't know whether it's the Wombles. Now I've named the Wombles, simply because, see tonight, you will remember the Wombles and hit me. underground. underground. You will remember that, right? So the earworm should have been hope and promise, but it had gone from Israeli society. So Isaiah was reminding them, you know, it would have been once passed on from father in that particular society to son and the family, but that had sort of been messed up a little bit through the kings and so on. So he was planting the earworm again and saying, I want you to live between the now and the then in hopeful expectation So he said, this promise was one that you should have known. The Lord himself will give you a sign. A young woman shall conceive and bear a son. And you will call his name. Emmanuel means God among us or God with us. And then, for unto us a child is born, a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, again, it's about the application of faith. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And then it goes on to say what he'll do. He'll establish justice and peace. See, once again, the things he said the false religions didn't do, he says, God will turn that up. It's counterintuitive to the spirit of the age. So it's not about doctrine or theology. It's about practical application of faith. And then he said, there's a better day coming. The Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him his reward will be with him and his recompense before him. He will restore his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with the young. So I'm going to do just something as we conclude. I'm going to play a song from Michael Card's The Promise album. It's the first, it's The Promise, because I just want you to think about it. And I'm going to show the first verse. And when we finish the first verse, There's going to be a few seconds before the team at the back can put the song with the words. Just use that to implant the earworm. We need to be reminded of who God is. We need to be surprised by God again. We need to be reminded of the stuff we learned when we were children and the stuff that as adults we've sometimes put aside. We need to be reminded what true religion is, that we're not judged on our doctrine. We're not judged on the way we apply theology in terms of theory, but it's what we do with the stuff. It's how our lives are changed and how we become agents of transformation. There's a theologian I love and he basically says, have no doubt that when you apply your faith in society, there will be turbulence and white noise because God's values conflict with and challenge the values of society. And whether it's the stuff that's going on in the world about the World Cup, whether it's about the floods, whether it's about unjust regimes, when God's value through Christian people is brought in there, expect turbulence. So this, already and not yet, is a period of white noise. But what we've gotta have in the middle of that white noise is to make sure we're plugged into to the word and the love of God. How do we do that through his spirit? And once we've received his spirit, it's indelibly there. It's there forever. And we need to hold on to the promise, the one true hope. So, this is the opening verse. The Lord God said, when time was full, he would shine his light in the darkness. He said, a virgin would conceive and give birth to the promise. For a thousand years, the dreamers dreamt and hoped to see his love. But the promise showed their wildest dreams had simply not been wild enough. I want you to have, I want all of us to have wild dreams.
1: He would shine his light in the darkness. He said a virgin would conceive and give birth to the promise. For a thousand years the dreamers dreamt and hoped to see his love. But the promise showed their wildest dreams had simply not been wild enough. The promise showed their wildest dreams had simply not... Enough. The promise was love and the promise was life The promise meant light to the world Living proof that our way saves For the name of the promise was Jesus The faithful one saw time was full And the ancient pledge was on so oh God the Son, the Incarnate One, His final word, His own Son, was born. But the promise was Jesus, living proof that Yahweh saves for the name of